Hello, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of Africa's a Country Talk. As always, it's me, Will Shorky, one of your hosts, and I'm streaming from Johannesburg, South Africa, joined, as always, by my wonderful co-presenter, Sean Jacobs, who's in Brooklyn, in New York. ARAC Talk, as you should know by now, is a weekly talk and interview show. We broadcast every Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern time, which is New York time, I think, uh, or 5 p.m. in Dakar, if you're here in Africa. <laughs> And this is episode 31. Or it might be decolonizing time. This is episode 31, but it might actually be episode 30. But I think the, the point, this goes to show that we're at that point of having done so many episodes that we're losing count, which is. I think it's think episode it's 30. Nice we were just reminded by a producer that it's um, exactly. episode 30. Exactly. 30, our wonderful producer, Antoinette Engel, who's in Cape Town, South Africa. And welcome to AIAC Talk. So uh, th thank you, Will, for, for that great welcome and that introduction. If you missed our show last week, the episode explored or was dedicated to International Women's Day, and it took stock of the struggle for women's liberation on the continent. We had three guests, Serene Hassim from South Africa, Rosbel Kagumire from Uganda, and uh, Rama Saladieng from Senegal. They're all prominent and respected feminist scholars and activists. We also paid homage to a friend and colleague, Karima Brown, died on March 4th of COVID-19 in Johannesburg, South Africa. And clips from that episode are available on our YouTube channel. But as usual, uh, best check out the whole thing on our Patreon along with all episodes from our archive. Just before we move on, I want to I want to mention to our audiences that next week we're going to be starting an hour earlier because the Global North does this weird thing with daylight savings time. I, I, I don't understand it, uh, but it means that we are going to we're going to push uh, back or forward the show and start at we'll colonize time. Colonize African time. And unfortunately, Sean is living in a colonized time zone. So to accommodate him, given the, the very generous people in the global south that we are, we're, we're going to start an hour earlier. And to tell you about this week's episode, which is why you're here, we're going to be discussing an exciting new film about the murder of anti-apartheid activist Dulcie September and how such stories unearth South Africa's unresolved past. So first, we're going to be joined by Enver Samuel, the director of the new documentary, Murder in Paris, along with Evelyn Hrunink, who's the author of the book, Incorruptible, the story of the murders of Dulcie September, Anton Lubowski, and Chris Hani. Later, we're going to be joined by Madeleine Fullard, the head of South Africa's Missing Persons Task Team, which looks for the remains of murdered liberation fighters. But first, Sean, what are you watching? I think um, because this week we're talking about film, we're using film to get into a discussion about South Africa's past. I thought I'll, I'll, we, maybe we should just say something we watched. And I, the thing I've been watching um, in the last week, which I really liked, is actually an older film called The Silver Fez. Um, it's directed by Lloyd Ross. And for people who know South Africa, he used to run, I think he was involved in this, uh, this um, record label called Shifty Records, which brought a lot of great records. Um, in any case, the film itself um, is about everyday class conflict um, in the Muslim community in Cape Town. And it plays out against the backdrop of what is known down there as the Malay choirs, which also is a misnomer, the word Malay. Um, in any case, it's a lot about competition, about, you know, about masculinity. What does it mean to be a man? 
and also what does it mean to be a to be a good Muslim? So it's very much kind of like colored um, working class um, culture in Cape Town. Um, the two main characters of these figures called um, Kachi Davids, which if you're from Cape Town, you'll just get that name. He leads one of the troops, the Continentals, and the other person is a man called Haji Bax, who is, and I described him to a friend the other day, as the Alex Ferguson and Roman Abramovich of choirs <laughs> to one person. And he owns a choir called the Starlights, and the two of them, they're competing for this thing called um, the Silver Fez. So there's a little bit about the history of these choirs. There's some controversy and some collusion with apartheid, but it, you know, in the making of culture, you know, it's always going to be the case. Um, and and large politics, kind of, you know, the capital P, that's in the background. Um, but if you if you if you're, it does it does require a little bit of knowledge of the city because you'll immediately get um, uh, the class dimension. And for me, the best part was the narrator of this film is this guy called uh, Mac McKenzie. Um, who is probably in South Africa? He was part of a band called the Genuines, um, along with um, yeah. uh, one of the Shilder uh, brothers. Well, if you're one of the next generation of the of the Shilders, and um, he, uh, you know, he's he, they. I think they were probably for me. They were the real punk band, <laughs> the first real punk band from South Africa. And he's funny when he sort of like helps people. Um, uh, to make sense, but the film is actually free on Vimeo. I don't know for how long, but just Google Silverfest on Vimeo. There's another version on YouTube, um, which uh, it's a it's not. I don't like that version on YouTube. I will just say leave the, the probably the filmmakers are gonna hate me for saying this, but leave the version on, on YouTube alone and watch the version on Vimeo. The Silverfest. I really recommend this film. And well, what what were you watching? I mean, this this film sounds absolutely brilliant, Sean. I'm gonna check it out. The Continentals and the Genuines are, you know, such awesome, awesome bands in South African history. So I'll be I'll be keen to check this out. I like I like the description of Haji Bucks's <laughs> mixture of Alex Ferguson and Roman Abramovich. That's quite a nice one. Um, also, also because Man United is a big team, you know, like the way people love their English football. Yeah. Uh, the description <laughs> didn't work. <laughs> Uh, to tell you what I'm watching, I, I haven't really been watching anything lately, but I will be watching something this Friday. I'm going to I'm gonna quickly plug an event that I might have had a hand in helping organize, uh, which is for Israeli Apartheid Week, actually, which uh, started on Sunday and ends this Sunday. It's happening internationally, and it's basically a week to try and and spread information and conduct public education about the ongoing apartheid uh, that is present in Israel and Palestine. And there's a screening that's going to be happening that people should register for. It's completely for free. It's a screening of a film called The Mayor, by, directed by David Osset. And it's basically a film that looks at the second term of the mayor of Ramallah in the occupied West Bank, uh, who goes by the name of Musa Hadid. Uh, and it, it tries to demonstrate sort of basically the, the mundane challenges of being a local official. You know, you have the ordinary tasks of trying to pave the sidewalks, of figuring out what the Christmas celebrations are going to be. So it's got this sort of parks and rec kind of mockumentary vibe to just show the the comic mundanity of of being a local official but at the same time it's happening against the backdrop of a military occupation and and people struggling to to govern their own city 
when they don't have statehood, they don't have self-determination, but but showing how in spite of all of those constraints and challenges, challenges they still try to make the city work. So I encourage everyone to, to, to register for the screening, to join for the for the Q and A. Maybe we'll have David on the show soon as well. Um, and I think it's it's going to be a, a great film, and it would be awesome if if I saw some folks attending there, including Patani, who's in the comments being slanderous and telling saying that I'm aging. I think that's that's <laughs> age is great. Um, but that's that's what I've been been watching. Um, and now back to what you're watching, which is the show. Uh, a reminder to everyone to hit the like button below, to subscribe to our YouTube, as well as to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please do subscribe to our Patreon where you can find access to all of the show's episodes on the archive and help fund Africa as a country in general. So to talk about today's program, which is why you're here, um, we are excited to have today's guests who are Enver Samuel, who is the director of a new film about the life and murder of Dulce September, as well as Evelyn Hrunink, who's an investigative journalist who wrote the book, Incorruptible, the story of the murders of Dulce September, Anton Lebowski and Chris Honey. I mean, first of all, to the both of you, thank you so much for, for joining us on today's show. It's an exciting week for the film, which is going to be screened for the first time to South African audiences on Sunday, which is Human Rights Day. That's going to be the first part of the screening. And then it's going to happen again on the 28th of March, which is the day before the anniversary of, of Dulcie's murder. So I think it's an incredible film, like I've just said. I mean, it's able to be both sensitive to what happened as well as to pray proper homage to the life that Dulcie lived. And just by way of starting, I think it's helpful for people who don't know who she was and who maybe only remember her because she was murdered as the ANC's chief representative and she was killed in, in Paris and France in 1988. So to, to start, I want to ask you both, how would you describe Dulcie to someone who's never heard of her? What would be the thing that you would say to someone by way of introduction to this incredible political figure? Um, Enver? Okay, um, thanks. Uh, thank you for having us. Um, truly appreciate it. Um, I encounter a lot of people along this journey that when you mention the name Dulcie September, are totally clueless. They, they don't have any idea who Dulcie September is. And when I expand on, on, on who she was and, and what she did, a lot of them are astounded that they don't know about that, the name Darcy September. I mean, for me, working on this documentary, Darcy September epitomizes, um, I mean, a, a, a woman that was, that was full of courage, a woman that was, was very brave, um, a woman that took the step to go um, into exile, turn her back on her family um, to pursue um, the struggle. So, so to me, um, the school teacher from Athlone um, is someone that definitely should be known in, in, in South Africa and, and the broader world. Evelyn? 
the word school teacher. Um, as I said in the in the lecture, there was a Freedom Park lecture on Dulce September. I think it will be broadcast this Thursday. Um, she was a very principled and ethical uh, person who was a school teacher. And I think that is important also to keep in mind when talking about what she did uh, in the struggle and what eventually led to her death because she would not compromise her principles nor her homework. And don't forget she was murdered in 1988 at a time when changes were afoot and people were already sort of preparing for a takeover of power in South Africa. And it is in that context that this very principled school teacher whose syllabus was, was the freedom charter, as it were, uh, somehow gets removed like she was an obstacle. I really enjoyed the... I think I said before the program, I like that it, it's, it, it's about most people that are, would be interested in the kind of the unraveling the mystery of a death, um, the murder. Um, but I think what the film does at the same time is to serve as probably what is perhaps the first attempt of a, a biography on screen, Elsie September, for people to know where she comes from and kind of her political convictions and her own political development. I think for that reason, it's very powerful. And so just to sort of, Enver, how did you, how did you come to make the film? Like, I mean, what, how did you get to this topic? Um, so I, I guess for me, it would have started then with uh, the documentary I made on Ahmed Timor, you know, the, um, the, the activist that was um, thrown out of the 10th floor of John Foster Square in, in 1970. Um, and, and uh, the, 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 Police at the time said um, that he had committed suicide. So I, I was astounded when I when I did some research um, into him and 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 found out uh, you know what he did and what he stood for. And the fact that that the thing that embarrassed me actually was that I actually didn't know who Ahmed Timor was. I had to read about him. You know, you know about just the Sulus and Tambos and Mandelas and Bikos. Um, so so I, I guess it's the same thing with Dalsi. I really didn't know much about Dalsi. And um, and the more I sort of dug into her her history, um, you know, you just Google a name and they're like it's an explosion of of information. And and why don't we know about this woman? Why don't we know about her? You know, so so that's one of the things that intrigued me to get to know more about the story and want to tell the story. Obviously, I mean, I also went the route of of engaging with the family and getting their buy-in. And um, you know uh, that was also by luck. You know, I, I, I happened to meet um, Randolph Arendt in Switzerland at a documentary festival, and 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 basically that's Randolph Arendt. For those who don't know, he's like her brother-in-law, right? By marriage. Um, yeah. So he's uh, he's he he's he his brother was yeah. was married um, to Dalcy's sister. Yeah, Stephanie. Yeah. So I'm I'm interested, especially. With you, Evelyn, you you've spent a large portion of your life investigating the circumstances of Dulcie's killing. More than thirty years you've spent trying to find out who killed Dulcie September. I'm curious to know why. What drew you to this woman and her life and her eventual murder? I did not know in advance. 
that it was going to be over 30 years. Um, I don't even want to speculate what I would have done if I had known. But what we thought at the time, and this is now naive, I was part of the Dutch anti-apartheid movement and we saw this thing that happened in Paris, this assassination of a comrade of ours with five bullets shot in her face. We saw that as something that was now our homework to stick with the school teacher uh, metaphor. This happened in our backyard. Paris is only 500 kilometers from Amsterdam. So, and I was a journalist. So I set out to do something that I thought was going to be not too difficult because obviously these were death squads sent by the evil apartheid regime. And of course, everybody in the civilized democratic West, remember all our governments were okay with sanctions against South Africa. In France, we had even, we even had a socialist president, François Mitterrand. Um, so I thought I would find a lot of support and people being with us trying to find those death squads, only they were not there. And that is what took 30 years. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I think is, is really interesting about your work, and not to give too much away about the film, that there is a way in which there were like the easy, there was an easy answer to the death of the Oscar September. She's the ANC's representative in Paris. The ANC's involved, the, the South African government is involved in a dirty war. It is murdering activists. And so the the sort of obvious suspect would be the South African, you know, a South African death squad. And, and both in Evelyn's, like in Evelyn's uh, uh, book and in the film, I, I think one of the things that kind of emerges is that no, you have to look somewhere else. And that somewhere else, as Evelyn sort of already kind of alluded to now in her answer, is that Europe, Europe is not what it seems to be, but particularly France, when it comes to apartheid, and that means understanding locally, understanding local politics in France, understanding kind of France's own relationship with South Africa, et cetera. Um, I mean, did those things, Evelyn, were you, as you sort of said this in a way already, but you were, you, were you sort of shocked as you kind of began to realize, maybe this is not the place to look. I need to go, I need to go look at all these other things. Well, I knew one thing for sure, and that is what that I needed to be in Paris. Uh, so for a long time, you know, I was like a penniless journalist. So I had to scrounge around and just find little bits and little jobs here and there to continue this. But there was definitely something wrong in Paris. It was the French secret services that were at the root of all the tracks that, that so-called led to apartheid death squads of the most simple and crude kind. You know, those bearded guys in short pants with rivals who would just kill somebody because she was black and an activist. All these things were said by the, by the French secret services. Then you were told that the head of the French anti-apartheid movement connected to the Socialist Party of François Mitterrand, they said, oh, don't, don't, take into account what he says, he's a Jesuit. Now a Jesuit, the stereotype, I'm sure I'm doing them an injustice, but the stereotype is a Jesuit can rationalize everything, can turn green into red, can turn right into wrong and wrong into right. And then you discover that there was a whole, 
Enver, I mustn't give away too much. Please talk. There's all this military nuclear collaboration going on. That 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 was of an evil. That was. I'm saying the word evil on purpose because it went way beyond the occasional. It's a bit weird to say it like this, but there was a lot of the occasional boxes of machine uh, on anti-aircraft missiles and and grenade guns and what what have you. All these things were documented by anti-apartheid movements and all the westernized countries and even some all the western countries and even some others were. We're, we're transporting these and selling these to South Africa. I mean, what the heck, they do that. So this was way more than that, way, way more. And as I started to notice that, I started that the French Secret Services started to be interested in me as well. Um, so that Paris that I found was, was very, very different from the Paris I had expected to find. Um, I, think, I think I should point out that um, for me, uh, as, as, as a filmmaker, you know, there was so much information on Darcy, um, but, but, but how do I tell the story? And, 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 and that's where, because I don't think so we've actually said it, but, but I, I then found out about Evan Kuning and, and then I decided to tell the story through Evan's eyes, basically. Um, so it's, it's twin, it's pairing, yeah. it's, it's Darcy September and Evan Kuning. Uh, parallel stories, making it. Um, Sometimes know. I hear her, and I never met her. <laughs> it's so weird, but I hear the voice of the school teacher who tells people, "Do your damn homework," because that was what was happening. Uh, that was what was not happening in the late eighties, and it was the background against which her own people in London, her superiors, uh, Sean mentioned Aziz Bahad. They, that was those people didn't want to listen to them when she told them, I discovered something, you must come to Paris. That is this thing. And it, it again, it wasn't just a simple thing. It was a difficult thing. Uh, and a thing about military nuclear alliances and what does this mean for our people who are still being killed in South Africa. Uh, later, somebody told me about a bomb that is so advanced that it can just wipe out an entire township. What were France and South Africa doing with a bomb like that? And she wanted to tell her her movement about it, but the movement was busy. The movement was busy preparing for power. They didn't want to listen to her. And I, in my head, it looks like the movement didn't want to do its homework. And in my head, there is a little bit of a, an echo of that even now. You, you don't see a lot of homework happening, a lot of ANC people coming together to talk about what it was all for. And why, why, why is that, would you say? Because I think it's, you know, the fact, for example, which I had not known before I started to see publicity for this film, uh, that Dulcy was the only high profile, probably just general African National Congress functionary that was assassinated outside of Southern African soil, you yes, hear something exactly. like that and you think to yourself, well, how come the liberation movement at that particular point in history, 1988, where it was the high point of, of mobilization, both locally and internationally, how come very little was made of this? Yeah, when, when they had sort of the moral high ground, 
when they had like the moral high ground to push for an investigation of that kind, like why? Um, again, we don't want to, the film deals with some of this, but yeah, just kind of, you know, when they, they the ANC comes across as not wanting to do much, making big public pronouncements about this, but not not doing much. And to, and to add to that very quickly, just as you guys make the film now, what is their attitude to you? I'm curious. What? How are they sort of responding to this film coming about now? And, and, and with coming out. Yeah. Exactly. Um, they didn't even make a lot of noise. Huh? Even at the time, it was uh, noticed by journalist colleagues of mine who said, why is the ANC not saying more and not doing more about this? This is a high-profile leader uh, comparable to an ambassador who was assassinated, professionally assass assassinated in the middle of Paris. Um, so no, uh, there was a lot of silence and in a way that silence continues until today, it is sort of buried into the, in the narrative of apartheid killed Dulcie, which is nice because you can always blame apartheid and then the story's told. But what happened was that uh, Enver, it was Patrick Tarek Mallet, who said yes. that actually the killing of Delcy was the beginning of the corruption of the ANC. Not that they wanted to be corrupt, but being distracted now by changes and the prospect of power and new allies and not wanting to endanger those new alliances. In that context, if this woman starts phoning you and saying all these very... Uh, shocking things well she didn't she was disciplined she didn't say all the shocking things over the phone but i think the message that there was something shocking that did come through later solly smith who was then the head of the london office and still later was found out to be an apartheid agent sort of drunkenly collapsed at an occasion where i was and started telling me they phoned us they phoned us she wanted us to come to paris but we didn't come and now she's dead so they didn't want to come because Delcy was saying inconvenient things. She was being inconvenient. And then when she was killed, they didn't know what to do. They only had that narrative of apartheid agents killed Delcy. And that was that. I was amazed. I wrote the first thing about this in 1998. You can look it up, Mail and Guardian, uh, on the twisted trail of Delcy's death. Not everything is there yet, but the main story is, is, is there already. Uh, I had sort of an idea of the main story. But again, time and time again, it comes back to apartheid dead squads. It drove me insane for, for so long. Andrew, do you want to you want um, yeah. add to that? Um, yeah. so, so, uh, I'd just like to point out that um, like a few days after death, uh, Oliver Tambo, then the, the ANC president, issued a statement saying that um, they will leave no, no stone unturned to find the killers of Dowsie September. Yes, oh, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's 33 years later. But to go back to William's uh, question, you know, I tried to engage with um, women in the presidency, um, the presidency, uh, you know, um, very, very unsuccessfully, like right up to DG level. Um, they're simply not interested, uh, you know, um, which, is, which is just another indication of how how things are, are so rotten in the core. Um, you know, um, they know the history of Darcy September, but no one was willing to engage with me. So, um, 
I wanted to I wanted to ask just about the other aspect of of the story, which I think comes through both in the film um, and in and evidence journalism, which is like this. And I mentioned it just sort of in passing earlier, which is we learn a lot more about Delcy, and I think this this idea of providing a biography of Delcy to because again outside of I would say before the show it's sort of oral you know in, in, in one's oral history or or just if you if you grow up in a, in a place like Cape Town you're gonna hear the name of Delcy September so it's not shocking when Delcy September becomes the ANC's representative chief representative in France because she comes out of um, really uh, radical politics in the early 1960s um, in Cape Town, she gets sent to jail. I mean, and what people don't remember is that she goes to, she's part of a group of uh, activists who go to jail. Uh, the male, the men go to Robben Island, like uh, Neil Alexander, uh, Marcus Solomon and so on, Fille uh, Lepam. And a lot of that part of her life, part of that story of her life never came out. Her own relationship with her own family, um, you know, with her parents and so on. Many of these things I think get finally gets to be told we get a, we get a full picture of her also and i again we don't want to because there's sort of aspects of her life which we've heard about um her own sort of way that she was an ANC activist in exile because you can sort of recede into exile and just do kind of paperwork legwork you know like the everyday i think somebody once described being in exile as being like at a station you're just waiting to travel from one place to the other because it's kind of it's depressing, but from Dulcie's life, you get a sense of somebody who was active, like an active political agent. Um, this is what I really enjoyed uh, uh, about the film. Was that was that an intent? Was that an intention on your part, um, Andrew? Um, yeah, I, you know, I mean, it's very, very sort of um, like complex edit in terms of what you leave in and what you leave out. But I wanted to find a balance, and um, I think I got the balance right. Um, and and to 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 hook in uh, her old uh, comrades and and friends for me was always a crucial part of um, part of the narrative. So, for example, when we when we do get to chat to people like Marcus Solomon, Betty Van Hayden, um, for me, one of the, the amazing things and the touching thing is that 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 they're still able to laugh, you know, still able to laugh about how they were in the dock, we were sentenced to five years, you know, that sort of thing. Um, despite all that um, hardship and 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 the, the challenges they were going to face, they were still able to to laugh about it. And, and, and then 33 years later, you, you see them actually giggling about things like that. So so for me, that's, that, that was one of the most amazing things. And that's why like um, in terms of creating a balance, that aspect had to feature quite prominently in the documentary. I think, yeah, I think it's, I mean, I just have to, as you were saying now, I have to give you the credit that the her family and her friends being interlocutors in the story are as much a part of the story as them telling that story about her life which I think is a, is a, is a truly uh, fantastic uh, filmic choice. Um, and when it comes to the story, the fact remains that it is unresolved. And one thing we do know about Dulcie's life and her killing is that there, there was an attempt to sort of try and investigate 
the the murder not only in in France but also post apartheid it was addressed uh, at the TRC briefly um, and some of notorious some of the notorious characters from South Africa's apartheid regime were there to answer about what happened and till this day that remains unresolved so I mean not to again not to reveal too much about the film I'm curious to try and to understand I mean how do you what do you guys see as the prospects for this thing being reinvestigated again for more answers coming out of of this process that you've helped generate of of undoing her erasure uh, and and reinserting her into history do we think that it might provide us the opportunity where people take notice and and say no actually this thing needs to be needs to be addressed and it needs to be re resolved um, I, I can announce on I can announce actually you know it it, 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 it has, it's not well known but um, the, the, the family of Darcy September um, recently um, filed papers with the French judiciary to get the case reopened. Um, and, and they're actually using the documentary as part of their submission uh, with, with the evidence uh, because of some of the narrative of the documentary. So that's a hugely important um, uh, step in, 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 in getting this um, in this this case uh, reinvestigated or reopened and and contributing to the, to the un erasure of Darcy September Evelyn yeah I hope uh, something will happen like that that authorities will take this seriously but I don't think it will uh, there's just too much uh, that's for authorities both in France and South Africa would need to remain hidden um, I think back to the policeman of the Brigade Criminelle who told me in 1989 that if you think it was us, then do you really think we're going to solve this case? You're, you must be mad. Um, yeah, and the same with, uh, I think, the ANC government as it is. Um, I do go, um, since Enver can promote his movie here, I want to promote my book. <laughs> that it is. <laughs> I'm shameless. Um, <laughs> I, I think the the solution, not hundred percent, but close close to a solution, is 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 in the book because I, and it also reflects in the case that is being made in France. If I understand Enver correctly, by the family, so they, it comes down to the painters that were strangely, in the building where Delcy September worked and where she was assassinated, somebody had recruited painters and it was not the ANC. And one of these painters uh, was a whole lot of things, but was not a painter. And the other element of that, again, without giving away too much, is that the lift in the building has a window, has, a, has like a little uh, gap where you can see through what you come to as you ascend to your fourth floor. And Dulcie September, her character was very, very aware and cautious. 
she was being threatened and she was very cautious. She had told people, don't do this, don't do that because you will be killed. She would not have come out of the lift if she would have seen somebody standing there. And she was shot as she came out of the lift in the face from the window side. So my, it is speculation, but it could only have been the painters because those were the people that she would have said, okay, we know these painters in their white overalls. And later, in fact, there was a white overall abandoned on that floor. It was seen by another painter who had worked at another side of the building and who happened to be an actual painter. So I may not have resolved everything, but, but I think uh, sort of from, from the testimony of the real painters, I learned a lot. Mm -hmm. This is the, the last question, which is, what is it, what is it about arms deals? <laughs> it's basically my question that we get this arms deal at the end of apartheid that leads to the death of a leading AIMS official, and we cannot seem to get an answer on that. And in post-apartheid South Africa, at the heart of the, the corruption of the ANC, there's also an arms deal that we are still um, dealing with it, like court cases by with the French company. Mm. Being, I think the court case happened again the other day. Uh, or you have Zuma, the whole Zuma thing starts with that arms deal. Um, I mean, yeah. what, is it, what is it about arms deals mm. that... Somebody in the film actually says something about arms deals and about, you know, it's not about her being her being uh, uh, troublesome or, or asking too many questions. It's that she threatened... Uh, the interests of people, like very powerful. Like, so what is it? It's not just individuals. In principle, I agree with you, Sean, Sean, that, I mean, even journalists, lots of people have been killed over arms deals. So it is a hectic thing to be uh, putting, you know, meddling with. You should not. But there are arms deals and arms deals. As I said in the beginning, uh, many anti-apartheid movements and the world campaign against collaboration with South Africa, they unearthed a lot of things. And many of them were actually pretty inconsequential after a few headlines, it's, it just died out. Nobody was ever assassinated over them. Uh, I think what was special about what Dulcie unearthed was, maybe I can compare it to me selling my car to bank robbers. That's bad, but you know, it's, it's not that bad, <laughs> but me actually, uh, France and South Africa now together, plotting a thing that can wipe out an entire township. That is much worse than just selling a crate of guns. Much it, 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 it indicates a geopolitical alliance that actually maps out your future because you have thought about it. And that is when I come back to, and, and the same goes for the arms deal, of course, because we bought, South Africa bought those British fighter jets uh, in the book. I, I actually connect the murder of Chris Hani to that, but that's another story altogether uh, that we didn't need. And it took uh, more than half of the entire sum of money that was paid. And it was also about a geopolitical alliance and in a way remaining part of Britain or coming back to be part of Britain. Um, and, and it's not to say that those things mustn't happen, those alliances, but I think what Elsie September wanted was for her movement to sit down and think about it, do some homework. But they were so eager to just get into whatever deals and power and contracts it was, mm -hmm. they didn't listen. Mm -hmm. Enver? 
For, yeah, for me, I think for me, um, the, the, for the viewer, I um, I want them to to not think that this is a story just caught up caught up in the past. It's a story that it, that is in the past but comes back to the present. And so when you talk about arms deals, you know, there uh, there, there is is that link um, of, of the old arms deal and the new arms deal. And um, I just think, I mean, when you quantify the amounts, um, you know, like I think there's a figure of like 60 billion rand in today's terms. So, so when you when you're talking about a lot of money and, and money as much as that, you know, um, you you asked Sean about about what is it? I mean, you know, money seems to make people go crazy, and um, you know, uh, I guess watch the documentary and see 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 the see the link. We, we 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 make. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, we could we could keep talking, and we we're sort of on the verge of just giving away all the great scenes. Um, but just to let people people know that the film will be broadcast in South Africa on Saturday night on public television, the SABC, um, in two parts this Saturday and again next week. Um, we're hoping it's going to be available uh, later um, on streaming services. I will just say before I thank. Um, Enver and Evelyn, uh, I loved just hearing her Cape Town English. It was, I was like, yo, I know that sound. I, I actually, I grew up not, I would say like about 15 minutes away from where she lived in Lansdowne. So it's like, I, I when I heard it, I was like, yeah, I, I know that accent. And then she had that accent still when she was in England and when she was in France. And I think that's one of the other surprises of the film is that you hear a lot of her when she speaks. Um, so, I, so I just want to let people know, look out, look out for that. So thank you, um, um, Envan Evelyn, for coming on to the show. We could keep um, uh, talking to you, uh, but we have one other thing that we wanted to talk to you. So thank you very much, and thanks for coming on the thank show. You, thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. So um, our next guest is a uh, um, second guest, our last guest for the day is uh, Madeleine Fullard who is the head of uh, South Africa's uh, Missing Persons Task Team, which is a unit that is inside the, the National Prosecuting Authority, which is in South Africa, people know it as the MPA. Um, and we were trying to create like an equivalent. I think we came down to saying it is, it is imagining it's in the office of the Attorney General. Um, Correct. Yeah, something, it's something like that. Um, and that what, what this Missing Task Team does is that it, it goes around the country locating um, the graves of activists who were disappeared under apartheid, it exhumes their remains, identify them um, with, as, with their families there and reburials and have them reburied. Um, and one detail also just of, by way of introduction of Madeline's own background is that, you know, her, she herself, she's a former activist. She was part of the, the United Democratic Front. This is the movement that revived the protest um, against apartheid in the in the late 1980s, kind of the last leg of the fight against apartheid. And she also interestingly worked after 1994 um, as a researcher for the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that body that we mentioned earlier, where part of Dulcie's um, case had a hearing. So be just before you tell us a little bit about the, the missing persons task team, um, Madeline, can you just, can you, do you have anything, do you have any thoughts on the Dulcie September case that you can, that you remember or from the work that you've done? I know that she's not murdered inside South Africa, but do you have any thoughts on that case? 
Um, well, she is one of a number of incidents that took place outside of South Africa that, you know, we don't have finality on, we don't have information on. Um, I can think about the bombing of uh, Father Michael Lapsley, uh, the attempted bombing of, uh, was it Godfrey Motsepe in uh, Belgium? And um, there, there are quite a number of incidents in, in the frontline states as well, where we, we never got amnesty applications at the TRC. And so she forms part of um, a, a sort of broader range of incidents and attacks that, you know, we, we really still need to get to the bottom of and um, to hopefully before the perpetrators are all deceased because uh, people of that generation are now in their 70s and 80s, if not deceased already. And um, we need to look at how how is that going to happen? Um, basically, we didn't get a lot of amnesty applications for incidents outside of South Africa. Um, was that because it often involved the South African Defence Force, the military? Uh, whereas the bulk of amnesty applications at the TRC were actually from the security branch, the security police, and not the military. Um, was that one of the outcomes of the failure of the Magnus Malam trial, for example? He was, uh, he was a former defense minister. Yes, yeah, yeah. the former minister of defense. Uh, so, you know, there's the, there's those kind of questions. But so I, I tend to see Dulcie in that sort of broader range of... Um, incidents that took place outside of the country of which we did really get very few amnesty applications and um, we, we still are in the dark about quite a number of those incidents, yeah. So can you just say, just thank, thanks for that answer, can you just say a little bit for, uh, for people about the work of the Missing Persons Task Team, like what is the, what is, what is this team want to achieve? Yeah. Okay, so basically, the uh, when the TRC wrote its final report, it included a recommendation that the government must set up a task team in the NPA to carry on the work of trying to find, um, well, establish the fate and whereabouts of those who disappeared uh, in political circumstances between 1960 and 1994. Um, and so the missing persons task team is the outcome of that uh, recommendation in the TRC report. I think we we know that not all the TRC's recommendations were accepted by government, but this one was. And so the task team was set up in late 2004, initially very small, um, and it also really uh, owes its origins to the uh, interactions the TRC had and um, some of us had uh, with the Argentine Forensic Anthropology team. Um, which, as you probably all know, began doing this work of recovering victims of conflict in the 80s, in the early 80s, uh, particularly recovering the, the remains of victims of the military dictatorship there, and particularly using forensic science to recover the remains. And so the Missing Persons Task Team in South Africa tried to build upon the practices and the principles that the Argentine team had developed, um, which were in a way quite different to the kind of standard forensic police approach. For example, the police would never involve a family at an exhumation, but the Argentine team would invite the family to attend an exhumation. So even though we are a state organ, uh, we actually adopted a lot of the techniques 
uh, used by an NGO, uh, you know, a, an organization outside of the state. And for example, involving the families um, and that kind of South-South uh, relationship that we established with the Argentine team has, has sustained us. And in fact, one of the Argentine team members actually works in our team, uh, Claudia Bisso, um, a forensic archeologist. And so, you know, we're very grateful and we have, I think a lot of our success has really been built on absorbing the practices and um, learning from, from the Argentine team. So yeah, we began in 2005 and um, um, yeah, I can talk a little bit about the kinds of cases we've got. Um, to, which to ask are, about that, I think I wanna ask about when you started in 2005, what were your expectations? How big was the list of names of people that you had to find? Did that list expand? How long did you anticipate this work lasting for? What was it like beginning this, I think, tremendous task in 2005? Yeah. So there was a list published in the TRC report, which was about 500 names, but the, uh, it says at the top of that list, this is not a complete list and it surely is not. Um, it doesn't even include, for example, you know, the PEPCO 3 or the Mamalodi 10, for example, and many of the amnesty cases. So it, 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 that is just a partial list. And certainly over the years, as our work uh, sort of gained a bit of a public profile and people came to hear about it, we've continuously uh, received families come with legitimate political disappearances. So that's, uh, that's uh, the list has continued to grow. How many, how many names were on the original, on the original list? Uh, the original list, I think it's 477. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the period and, that it covered, it covered from... Sorry? It covered which period from... From 1960 up to 1994, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what I can say is that uh, people often tend to think that those are only cases involving the security forces, but it actually covers a range of uh, disappearances from uh, sort of arising out of the entire political like proxy wars. So it also involved like proxy wars, like the war in KwaZulu Natal, for example. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So uh, we have, um, I would say, probably a, a third of cases involving the security forces where people disappeared. Uh, basically, they were last seen at the hands of the security forces. It's believed that they disappeared at the hands of the security forces. Then we've got um, people who went into exile and never returned. Um, and that could be because they they died in exile in different circumstances, um, or they might have been infiltrated back into the country and died in, um, while operating underground inside the country. And then lastly, as you say, um, we have uh, people who disappeared in um, conflict with within the country. Sometimes we also we have cases as well. Um, cases of conflict within or within an organization itself um, uh, within the PAC for example or within the ANC we have uh, disappearances there and um, disappearances in conflict between the ANC uh, with, between the UDF and Azapo in Soweto for example so there is quite a range and they all require kind of different investigation techniques and um, 
and um, yeah, so uh, it's not it's not just one line of inquiry that we have to follow. It's it's mm. it's varied. Yeah. How how does the line of inquiry emerge? You mentioned earlier that as your public profile started to rise, then people would approach you. And I'm curious to know when when a family approaches you, how does that work? How do they normally hear about you? How do they 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 request for your help to to track down the whereabouts and give them finality about the disappearance of of a loved one? And you mentioned earlier that your approach is unconventional and learns from the approach of that Argentinian NGO. How do you subsequently then incorporate the family into the process? Well, obviously, you start with the family. You start with interviewing the family, um, information from the family. Um, but sometimes, actually, the family uh, maybe hasn't seen the person for 10 or 15 years if they left the country. So uh, you have to turn to people that uh, were possibly in, uh, in exile with uh, the person. And um, we use documents as well. We have recovered lists of exiles from old security police documents. Um, we, I would say actually about 70% of our work, 60 to 70% of our work is actually what we call the preliminary investigation. And that is where we, we, we develop a hypothesis about what the fate of the person was. And that hypothesis um, is what will lead us to a possible excavation site. Um, we may be wrong on that hypothesis and the excavation will fail then. But if we are right on our hypothesis, then the excavation site will, will possibly lead us to, to remains. Um, you know, inside the country, um, and I must say that the bulk of our work has been inside the country. We've actually only done one exhumation outside in the country's borders, and that was in Botswana. Um, but within inside the country, th there's basically two kinds of scenarios that we face. And the first one is where people were killed um, and their death was essentially not concealed. The body was left in a public place and um, essentially that body was found by people. Mortuary vans were called, the police were notified. The body went to a mortuary. It entered the mortuary records. A police docket would have been opened. Um, and this is what we refer to as the, the bureaucracy of death. Um, ultimately, the body, if not identified, would have been buried as a pauper in a local cemetery, would have entered cemetery registers. And so there's a paper trail that we can follow to some extent. Uh, usually, we can recover at least one of those documents. And that's been the bulk of the exhumations that we've done. That's been largely, for example, MK members killed in skirmishes inside the country who, whose bodies went to mortuaries and post-mortems were even done. Um, and then they were buried as unidentified paupers. Um, and those we are able to trace often. But then there's a second category, and that's what we call the covert or clandestine abductions and killings. And those cases, the person never enters the formal system. Um, and the circumstances and location of their death is known only to a small handful of perpetrators. And in those cases, um, 
unless we unless there has been an amnesty application which gives some information or we get some information from the perpetrators we are unable to recover those remains that's just been we've worked long and hard on those clandestine covert deaths in other countries like in argentina i know for example they have worked in the terrain of a military compound and they have managed to recover burnt fragments for example we don't have the numbers of disappearances that Argentina has, for example. So our, our clandestine covert disappearances are small, individual, and very uh, in remote locations. And unless we get information from the perpetrators involved, we won't be able to find those people. So those are two kinds of cases, the kind of public ones and then the covert clandestine ones that, that we work on. So just on that, you, you say that a lot in that one category it's the, these are only known to a small number of perpetrators how do you yeah. do you do you have to work with them then to sort of figure out what happened to people and can you say more about how forthcoming they are then to help you find people okay well this particular picture you're showing right now this was on a this was one of the clandestine covert deaths this was on a farm in Zerist, a private farm and there was an amnesty application. Um, it involved the killing of an Ascari at Flakplas in 1989. His name was Pamelo and Telang. And uh, I think he was a little bit of a reluctant Ascari. Um, he seemed to just drink heavily. Just for people who don't, who are outside South Africa, an Ascari is a former ANC or PAC activist who was turned by the security forces to then work for them. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, and anyway, he lost his firearm. And I think it was the second time he'd lost his firearm. And he was assaulted at Flakpas. And then he was tubed with um, the inner tire, the, the rubber inner tire, and he suffocated to death. And then his body, he was wrapped up in a blanket. And uh, Eugene de Kock and some of the other Flakpas um, officials then drove him out in a vehicle to this private farm in Flakplas. Uh, one of them, Martin Saras, had grown up on the farm next door, so he knew the, the site. And they buried him in that, that hole that you saw there next to a river. And so uh, when de Kock was in prison, um, we requested his assistance, and he prevailed upon Martin Saras to, to take us to the site. Um, and even with that cooperation, we still had to dig for two weeks to to locate that um, that that grave. And we found uh, Pamelo's remains still still wrapped in this green blanket from from Flakplas. Um, and that was the example of um, getting assistance. I mean, we would never in a million years have located that particular spot on a private grave. 300 kilometers from where he'd originally been killed in Pretoria. Um, so, you know, that, that's what I mean. We wouldn't find it without some kind of assistance from or some kind of information from, from the perpetrators. And even when they do give information, it was still a struggle to locate the, the grave. We had to use a machine um, and dig up a field, basically. Yeah. So I wanted to ask and uh, put a more sort of political question from you. Um, I understand that there have been, you know, so of course there are uh, 
the tens of thousands of people died in political violence, like we mentioned, proxy wars, um, yeah. you know, violence on trains. But if we're talking about political assassinations, I'm assuming there are tens of thousands of them that must have happened between 1960 um, and 1994. And as I understand it, and of course we had the TRC, that there were very, there was, I think you can count on one hand the number of people that, that actually are in jail for those assassinations. Um, of course, people get the satisfaction now of, or, or satisfaction is not the right word, but they, they can have closure because the, their relative was found reburied in a, in, you know, with some rights and, and so people can feel connected to them in some way. But how, how, how do you feel about this, this process that like very, very few of these killers, if you want, um, actually paid for this in the end? Or is this just something that we must accept? And I think this kind of relates to our earlier discussion around Delsey September about wanting some kind of justice that is, is, is it, it's infuriating at some level, but is this just also kind of a consequence of like, what happens after you've had this, you know, the violence that you had in South Africa, that this, is, this, this might be the best terms in which you can move on. I mean, what do you, yeah. what do you say to that? Yeah, that's um, our team doesn't really deal with the issue of prosecutions. Um, you know, we deal with the recovery of remains. And I must say, I think of the cases that we've worked on, probably um, maybe three or four had the possibility of prosecutions. Uh, the skirmish kinds of cases that we dealt with, where there was kind of shootouts with uh, the security police, probably. Um, would never have yielded prosecutions. Um, and some of the cases are, that we've worked on are, are very complex. Um, we've also, um, I mean, just, I'm just talking about the cases that we've worked on. When you're saying, sorry for interrupting, but when you say there's like a yeah. skirmish, is because that's in the context of war, right? So it's yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a war going on, and regardless of how one yeah. feels about it now, there was a war, and that person yeah. who did the killing, yeah. they did that killing because they were being ordered to do that killing. So there's a there's a difference between that kind of killing, and then there's other yeah. kinds of killings where they sort of went overboard or acted without a mandate, mm -hmm. if you want. Yeah. Look, I don't think you'd be able to achieve prosecutions in in a context of a, of of you know where uh, bullets are flying both ways that's that's not going to be a prosecutable scenario um the challenge is that uh just to give an example um one case that we worked on where four mk members were shot dead in a vehicle crossing from botswana so um the circumstances that that took place in are very unclear. Um, it is said that they fired back at the security police, but we don't have any proof of that. Um, the f forensic evidence on their remains, they have multiple gunshot wounds. You can't say that they were executed. It's not those kinds of injuries. Um, you know, unless you have somebody there again, you've probably got 
maybe four or five security policemen involved in that incident? Was it an ambush? Was it a shootout? Unless you have somebody from that group who reveals the information, how do you proceed? It's, it's very difficult there. Um, we also have cases, uh, we've done four exhumations, yeah, four exhumations involving the Mandela Football Club, for example, um, Lolo Sono and Sibonito Shabalala, who disappeared in, in 1988. Um, one was driven away by in a, in a combi by uh, Winnie Madikisela Mandela, and they were never seen again. We recovered their remains, and we established that they were killed, that both of them were killed that very same night, stabbed to death with multiple stab wounds, 16 and 24 stab wounds, I think. So um, there are certainly cases involving the Mandela Football Club. We also have cases, um, a case of an MK guy run over and killed by another MK guy. Um, there are, um, I would say, a range of cases involving complex internal struggles within organizations that would be a challenge to look at. Um, so just within the cases that we work on, there are certainly a lot of difficult cases that would be a struggle to try and prosecute. Um, looking outside of that, outside of our work, um, I think that um, the cases that the NPA is looking at at the moment, I don't have a mandate to speak on prosecutions, yeah. but there are I think, 60 to 80 cases that are being investigated at the moment. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and to ask a final question, I just want to underscore uh, a comment from, from Mickey uh, in the YouTube comments where they say it's such devastating work, but it's, such important work and truly I appreciate now just the degree of how devastating it is. And to close off with perhaps a, a final question, the conversation we had earlier about murder in Paris and the mm -hmm. killing of September, uh, to, to give one maybe explicit detail of the film, uh, apologies to, to Enver, but there's a moment when the lawyer of Dulcie's family, Steve Karnovitz talks about how Apartheid's unanswered questions remain with its real victims for the rest of their lives. And I just wanted to know from your experience with the families that you encounter, do you think they've found any peace? Do you, do you think they ever will find any peace? And, and how do they cope from your, from your vantage point? You know, we never use the word closure. I think what we try and do and I think what we hope that the work of Recovering Remains does is basically move a family from the place where they've been stuck for 20 or 30 years to a different place. And I can tell you that sometimes that place is not necessarily easier. Sometimes our work uncovers very painful information. Um, I think in three or four cases, we have uncovered information that indicated that it was a family member that called the security police, for example. Um, and 
these, you know, we have a stance of not censoring information that is uncovered. Um, families have often over the 20 or 30 years that they've been thinking about the missing person have developed a theory or a fantasy or a belief about what happened to that person. Um, and now we come with different information. Um, just recently, we met with a family in Soweto whose um, brother disappeared in exile. And we found a document from the security police which indicated that he'd actually been arrested in Soweto. And we gave it to them. And before that, they were completely composed and calm and um, at ease and, you know, even talking and laughing and joking. You know, they've been working with the disappearance of their family member for so long that it's it's easy for them to talk about it now. And we presented this document and we spoke about what we had found. And the older brother, who is a very jocular, easygoing, lovely man, burst into tears um, at this new information. And he could, he could not accept it. He said, no, he was never detained. Could not accept it. So the, the, the journey to getting new information is, is actually quite a, can be a really painful one. Um, and it's not necessarily this kind of um, pathway to peace, the simple pathway to peace. Um, I think that we have to, we've learned over the years to try to be sensitive to the level of information that families indicate they're ready to receive. Um, so sometimes if families don't ask a lot of questions, we won't offer a lot of forensic detail, for example, about the state of the body or the information about death. We try and listen to, do they ask a lot of questions about how the person died? If they don't, we don't necessarily put it to them. We, we try and take the lead. Um, but sometimes we get it wrong, as, as we did with this brother um, in Soweto, and it's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, so no, we don't talk about closure. And um, I think even sometimes the answers that we get are, are not the ones that the families wanted. Yeah. So, but again, there are, there are very many um, outcomes that are, are really wonderful um, and where the families are able to conduct burials. Um, but again, that's, that's probably a minority of our cases. We will solve, unfortunately, a minority of the missing persons cases that we have on our lists. Um, so we have tried to develop also what we call uh, symbolic processes, uh, symbolic reburials, where, for example, we take the family to the place of death as best as we can establish it. Perhaps we've done this in instances with um, the family of Johannes Sambo, for example. We took the family to where he died in custody and we took them to the police location where his body was blown up. And we couldn't recover any parts of his remains at all. They were able to perform rituals at that site. Um, and that was actually really meaningful. It was really powerful. Um, and I, um, 
I'm probably a person that doesn't put much store in the spiritual, but I have learned to pay a lot of respect to processes that um, dignify the spirit of the person and allow the family to, um, and particularly for what we call processes of acknowledgement and recognition. I mean, one thing we've learned over the years is that it's not just about recovering the remains. It's it's also about recognition and acknowledgement of the family. And um, if we recover remains, but we don't factor in and build in processes of recognition, we sometimes are, um, I would say we, we've failed. Um, and that's a critical part of our work as well that we've learned along the way, yeah. I think that provides us a, a, a quite heartbreaking, but I also think a, a solemn and also somewhat comforting notes to, to conclude this program. Madeleine, thank you so much for, for coming on to speak about this. It's, it's very heavy material and I can imagine it can be exhausting at times to talk about it. So we're very grateful that you were brave enough to do that today. And, and thank you to my wonderful co-host, Sean. Thank you to the guests that we had earlier, Enver Samuel and Evelyn Hrunink. A reminder that speaking of recognizing the families and speaking of acknowledgement, Murder in Paris will be screening on South African TV screens this Sunday on the 21st of March on SABC3 at 7.30 p.m. and next Sunday uh, on the 28th of March at that same time, uh, please do catch it. Uh, and we're so grateful to have had all of our guests on today's program. We're grateful as always for our magnificent producer, Antoinette Engel, and to you, our lovely viewers who are always here with us. Thank you so much for joining, and we will see you again next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.